2: Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to delve deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Maya Bandari and we're here today at Crawford School in Canberra. Right now, Crawford is gearing up for its second semester of studies. And if you wanted to find out more about studying at Crawford School, head to crawford.anu.edu.au. Now it seems like diversity and inclusion are words that are being thrown around more and more often. Both the private and public sectors want to claim that they are doing everything they can to ensure that there is diversity in the workplace. But are we doing enough? Are we thinking about these important issues in the right ways? And what more should we be doing in terms of creating policies around diversity and inclusion? These are just some of the issues that we'll be discussing today. And for this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by three lovely women who are out there trying to make policies and create solutions for a more equal future. But before we get into it, just a quick reminder that if you had any comments or feedback about this podcast or any of our other pods, be sure to let us know. You can email us at podcast at policyforum.net or find us on Twitter where we are Apps Policy Forum or on Facebook at Asia and the Pacific Policy Society. Okay, so let's just jump right into it and hear what my guests have to say. So today I'm talking to three women who are working in the diversity and inclusion space and are able to provide some unique insights into how policies for diversity and inclusivity are being implemented in the public sector. So today I'm here with Samantha Freeben, the a pilot with the Royal Australian Air Force and Gender Advisor for Defence. How are you today, Samantha? I'm really well, thank you, Maya. How are you? Good, thank you. I'm also here with Leah Finnegan, who is the Diversity and Inclusion Policy Officer for the Australian Public Service Commission. Thank you for coming in, Leah. Thank you for having me. And I'm also here with Dr. Tashara Wickera-Maria Ratna, a fellow at the Churchill's Trust and a clinical psychologist. How
3: are you, Tashara? Good, thanks, Maya.
2: Um, so, first of all, I just wanted to ask what have been your motivations for working in this space of diversity and inclusivity? Just maybe we'll start with Samantha.
1: Yeah, so um, I was, I guess, seconded to a project uh, when I was pregnant with our second child. And I worked in the inception of a program within Air Force for increasing gender diversity into um, the more non traditional roles for women, so technical trades and a- aviation. And I guess the catalyst for me in that space was my supervisor took me to present to her children's primary school and I gave this little talk to eight, nine-year-olds and it was a 50-50 class of little boys and little girls and I was in my flying suit and I made sure that if they could rub their tummy and tap their head, they could all be pilots and at the end, we asked them who here wanted to be a pilot and instantly all of the little boys put their hands up. Um, and none of the little girls. And so we paused for a moment, and then we asked, what about the girls? Any girls wanna be a pilot? And eventually, one little brave soul put her hand up, <laughs> and I was a bit excited, and I said, oh great, would you like to be a pilot? And she said, no, I wanna be a flight attendant. Um, okay, and this is literally my mission in life, because I asked her, why don't you want to be a pilot? And her answer was, because it's too dangerous and girls can't do it. And I thought, that is not okay. I've just told you for the last 10 minutes and shown you that girls do do it. And it's not okay in Australian society today for little boys and little girls to rule themselves out of anything if they're interested in it or if they want to do it. Um, Yeah, and I just feel like that playing field needs to be really levelled.
3: Yeah, amazing. And for you, Tashaun? Um, for me, I think being a clinical psychologist, like thinking about what areas you know we are interested in working with, um, being a person who occupies multiple minority identities, I guess the purpose in my work actually comes from understanding some some areas of like marginalization and the things that my client groups experience in their daily life. So working with LGBTIQ people, ensuring that mental well-being is maintained, knowing these statistics and the increased risk for mental ill health amongst minority groups in general, but um, LGBTIQ people in particular. Um, And currently, you know, I work a lot with trans and gender diverse people because of the way I guess our system is set up Um, at the moment in Australia that People do face a lot of barriers in accessing the things that they need. So my role there is is to actually try and facilitate people actually being able to live a life that they're comfortable with and confident in and, and can thrive. Um, for me, I used to work in
0: leadership development, so it was learning and development for quite senior um, public servants, which was very very interesting and very rewarding. But I sort of think those people are already in quite privileged positions um, in their workplace. So when I got the opportunity to work in a diversity inclusion area, I took that up pretty quickly because I think it's really useful to uh, work with people and give a voice to people and help break down barriers for people who may find it harder to gain employment in the public service or their experience working in the public service may be more difficult. Um, Yeah, they face a lot more barriers than others. So, yeah, I think it's really... Um, important work and it's good to have passionate people doing it so I'm now one of those.
2: Um, So I guess my first question is for Leah and so as a diversity and inclusion policy advisor for the Australian Public Service How are diversity and inclusion
0: policies being implemented in your sector? And what are some of the things
2: that you think could be done better?
0: So we currently have three um, diversity strategies that apply to the whole public service. So there's a Commonwealth strategy, which is for Indigenous employment. So that goes broader than the public service. And that was government mandated and includes a target for employment. We've got um, a disability employment strategy and also a gender equality strategy. So those are things that have been developed by the Public Service Commission in consultation with agencies um, a few years ago now. So they're all due to expire this year or next year. So I guess our role is sort of supporting agencies to implement those the actions that come out of those strategies and, you know, they were all done with a lot of research and at the time they were very relevant but as we've moved on we've sort of discovered that a lot of the actions in all the separate strategies are quite similar um, and a lot of the barriers that people face are quite similar too so I think looking to the future we've done some consultation with private sector um, and some other APS agencies um, federal and state who are sort of working towards more of an inclusion strategy so rather than sort of segregating people into you know you're a person with disability you're indigenous you're you're identify as LGBTI it's about how can the workplace be more inclusive for every person because the current strategies don't really recognise intersectionality which is you know you could Identify as part of multiple diversity groups. So, how do you fit into the workplace? And if you don't identify as any diversity group, how do you fit into the workplace? So, it's just about making it more inclusive for all people.
2: And how are they dealing with intersectionality?
0: So, I guess we're not very effectively at the moment. I think a lot of people are sort of treating it on a case by case basis, I guess, and that's like that's great. But I think go- going forward, we can really focus on that a bit more and really acknowledge people who have that intersectionality in their life so yeah.
2: Mm. And Samantha you've been working as a pilot with the Royal Australian Air Force and so you know firsthand what it's like to be one of the few women in a male-dominated industry so I just want to know like what are some of the difficulties that you've been faced with in this regard and what do you think is being done right in this space?
1: Yeah and um, I guess my upbringing meant that when I did join the military, it was a bit of a shock to learn that other people had different views on the role of a woman. And this is, you know, back in the 90s when uh, I guess the olds and bolds still held a bit of sway Um, because I grew up with a sister. I grew up in a small town. I went to an all girls school. There were no boys out doing girls at school. If you were good at things, you automatically did them and you had leadership opportunities on account of excelling in an area. Um, and then when I joined the military, uh, all of a sudden there were some views that men would share with you on what a woman should or shouldn't do. Um, now I'm a like I'm a redheaded girl from the country, right? Like <laughs> you just don't put up with that. So I guess from the outset I I worked twice as hard to sort of prove them wrong. And I think what we're and obviously then time and experience eventually evens it out. And I think now it's a really different landscape. You know, aeroplanes don't know if you're a boy or a girl. <laughs> aeroplanes just know if you fly balanced or not. And um, the way that you you operate your crew and your mission and all of the complexities, you, you can't just be the same. A crew needs diversity of thought. It needs diversity in experience. It needs diversity in age. um, And it really needs diversity in skills under pressure. We're really good at teaching people to fly. But when you want to operate at the highest end, you, you need to have a really diverse team so that when I'm in an a time critical, high pressure, dynamic situation. The last person I want next to me is another me. <laughs> you know, I want someone who will complement what I'm not going to be great at. Likewise, I need to complement what they're not going to be great at. So, I think looking now in the organisation I'm part of, we're doing, we're really good at providing more of a supportive environment for people who bring different skill sets. Um, traditionally, in the military, it's very where you sort of break everyone down in their initial training to make you all the same. But what we're seeing now is those individual skill sets and specialist, I guess, opportunities and aptitudes are also now able to be implemented. Um, So I think, yeah, it's a lot more exciting, people who are joining the forces now than it was when I was because the technology is impressive and the skills that we need in our workforce are a lot, um, I guess a lot less conformist <laughs> in in uh, in for
0: one of different words can i just add there i think um people who are in sort of life or death jobs are really good at realising that, that that diversity of thought is so vital because it's literally your life on the line. People don't apply that to sort of office environments or other kind of workplaces. I think we can learn a lot from, you know, yeah, if we don't get that brief in, you know, we're not in that much trouble. Mm-hmm. But if we had that diversity of thought, maybe it would be a much more considered brief and would be better for the public. So I think we've got a lot to learn. Yeah. So how has like, involving more diverse
2: voices in Defence and I guess in the public service as well, how has that impacted the types of policy and the types of decisions that are being made?
1: Uh, certainly in Defence or in Air Force, you know, we've got a, um, a strategy out for the next 10 years and one of the vectors in that strategy is people and how do we make a fifth generation Air Force be supplemented by a fifth generation workforce, people who can problem solve, innovate uh, from the very minute they join. So you know, now we actually have policy and directives to articulate exactly what we're trying to achieve, whereas that wasn't ever the case in my previous experience. And it's the employee value proposition. So why would you want to come and work for your
0: organisation or for the public service if we're not going to be able to support you and help you achieve your best outcomes, I guess? So, I mean, the public services should reflect the community that it serves and our community is so diverse. So if we've only got sort of very narrow leaders or, you know, that's what the public service looks like, then how are we actually really supporting our community and the Australian public?
2: And now I just wanted to turn to Tashara. Um, so so far we've been speaking about, like, gender inclusivity in quite a binary manner. Um, so getting more females into male-dominated industries and I guess vice versa as well. But is there a place in policy and other inclusive policies for gender-diverse people?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, I think this comes back to intersectionality as well, is that we operate in a world where we come up against systems all the time. Um, and systems are built for the majority. So when someone yeah is a minority or inhabits like different multiple minority identities, um, you know that that person faces so many more like layers of barriers. Um, and, you know, this, this divide with binary gender is one. Um, when somebody goes to use a bathroom, for example, <laughs> you know, something that um, a lot of people don't think twice about, but um, for somebody who, you know, doesn't identify as male or female or, you know, moves between, um, and if their gender expression doesn't, Conform to the society's ideas of what gender, a particular gender looks like. You know, they they can, at best, experience like discomfort or awkwardness. But at worst, um, violence, aggression, assault, um, which are really serious things to think about and have such a deep impact on people as they're trying to just navigate their lives. You know, using like they're like going to the shops or going to school or you know going to work and being able to use facilities where you know they feel. That they can be in that space like lots of other systems as well so say with a health system and how people's identities are recorded or their names and how people um, understand themselves to be lots there's there's layers and layers and layers um, of you know how we can actually try and ease our understanding of binaries because i think that for the group of people for whom this doesn't matter you know, life doesn't necessarily have to change. But for the small group of people for whom it does matter, it makes a huge difference.
2: Yeah, I think the point that you make about bathrooms is quite important as well, because I feel like a lot of the time we get caught up in thinking about the big picture of things and social equality, gender equality and stuff. But something as simple as what bathroom do I go to is such a big decision that people who are going through these things have to make every single day. Yeah, just by being themselves. Exactly. Exactly. And I guess as a a clinical psychologist, Tisha, you're also seeing the wide reach of the effects of these policies or the lack thereof. And understandably, gender diversity and inclusivity is coming more to the fore because of the young voices that are bringing it up and making their voices heard. But is there any support or is there any space for people who are transgender and part of older generations? Yeah, absolutely.
3: I think that um, in the last... Five years, particularly, there's been a lot more visibility of trans and gender diverse or non-binary people Um, and um, older people, people who are older now have then felt the confidence and safety to come out like at a later age um, and be able to transition. And so, you know, definitely people are doing that and are supported to do that. Um, I think that there are certain needs um, that need to be met that we need to think about, and again, intersectionality so um, what are some of the medical implications of somebody transitioning at a later age, for example, what services do they have to access? so making sure that if somebody requires care um, that those services and facilities are actually equipped to support someone you know I think there's a lot to be said about aging with grace and dignity and treating our elderly um, in a way that they can do that, age with grace and dignity. Um, I think particularly for trans, um, gender diverse people who, you know, choose to undergo medical intervention say that there's not a lot of Powell's
1: up.
3: Um, control about disclosure when one is in an aged care facility. And so, you know, there, there has to be a lot of thought around safety and ensuring the person's safety, but also maintaining their privacy and confidentiality. Yeah, those are
2: some important things to think about. And Leah, with the work that you've done with the public service, um, is there any scope for non-binary policy going forward?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's something we recognise, I think, with the current strategies we have. There's three and it's really sort of putting people into those categories and it's almost like we haven't considered anybody else. So, you know, people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, people from the LGBTI community, um, things like that. So there's absolutely a lot of um, I think want for it in the public service there's a lot of very active LGBTI employee networks in agencies who are really great at sort of bringing their points of view forward and um, making sure they're recognised in all the sort of diversity inclusion policy that goes on so I think if we do move towards a more inclusive framework then that will definitely include
1: all people including that community. Uh, The military is also and Australia as a signatory to the UN Security Council Resolution 1325, Women, Peace and Security, and it's recognising the role of women in communities in everlasting peace. You know, they're part of a vulnerable population, not just women, but marginalised groups and children who will be the most impacted in conflict. Therefore, they're also the most... Um, marginalised in the rehabilitation of that country or that region and the military is certainly educating a lot more people now and they've got you know entire sections devoted to this area to make sure that a gender perspective and by gender I don't just mean um, women or men I mean like a vast variety of people who are considered a vulnerable population in conflict um, and in the aftermath of conflict. And how they actually get integrated into the peace process and the rebuilding, and how their thoughts and the impacts that occur to them, or they'll be impacted by, um, are mitigated from a from a military point of view and a peacekeeping point of view. So you know that's that's um, that's that's new. You know that's the last sort of five and seven years.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I just wanted to focus on a different side of things. Obviously, diversity inclusivity is not just about gender. Um, and the term "cult" is one that is becoming more and more popular and it means um, culturally and linguistically diverse. And I just wanted to ask Tashara, um, I was just wondering whether you think Australia is heading in the right direction with its cultural diversity and inclusion.
3: Um, I think it is heading in the right direction. <laughs> I think how we actually shape that, how it looks and the conversations around it um, will be interesting over the next couple of years. In, by that I mean that I hope that it, it is not just tokenistic, that, um, you know, people are part of the process. It's not like the idea of, you know, nothing about us without us, but nothing about us if we're not the drivers of it. Um, so people who are um, from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds and identities actually being front and center of the change that we want to see in um, more representation for one you know I think about I turn my tv on and I think no one on tv really looks like me and um you know how connected do I feel um with whatever the subject matter is that is going on or even in the advertisements like I think in other countries that I've been in um are you know, multiracial you do see that diversity of representation even in the media
2: and ladies are you seeing any more cultural representation in your sectors i
0: can i can echo um your points about yeah the representation. So actually being able to see it so there's some role modeling about you know people from diverse backgrounds are normal It's, it's it should just be everywhere and everyone should be able to see it um and also the tokenistic um i think a lot of people say um if you employ someone with disability you put them in a role that deals with people with disability so it's all in Indigenous people often fall into that category as well. So it's about taking those diverse perspectives and using them in different areas, not just in the area that they identify with, I guess, if yeah. that makes sense. Because so they, like, they may yeah. not
3: even want to no, be exactly. the advocate for yeah. that
0: area. And who says just because you're an Indigenous person, you know everything about Absolutely. all Indigenous people. You know, there's such, such diversity even within diversity groups, I guess. Yes. So it's about, yeah. I think sort of filtering that throughout organisations and putting people in areas that they are passionate about working in or you know those perspectives are going to help regardless of where people are working so yeah I think that's I think bringing that to people's making people aware of that is helping the the cause I guess yeah.
1: And I also think calling out and training the the unconscious bias that we associate with um you know for example a you know, a young woman comes into recruiting or they come into HR and therefore there's vacancies in administration, yet they're kick-ass at maths, Mm. then, you know, why aren't they getting encouraged into the more mathematical fields? Um, So I think there's a lot that can be done within organisations in existing areas and I guess one concept is the concept of uh, targets and quotas Um, that's not tokenistic, the fact that this is a real change we want to make and we have this supply, what we need to do now is create the demand. Um, So I I think that's an important step that we can make as well.
2: Mm, Sam, you mentioned quotas, and I just wanted to get your opinion on whether you think quotas are a good or a bad thing. (laughs) So Samantha,
1: seven years ago, would have told you, you just have to get the right people, and they have to want to do it, and you have to just work hard. Uh, No, I've come full circle. And it is because we don't have we don't have a society that doesn't want to contribute to society. What we need is a mechanism to incentivise or encourage or demand those biases be smashed. Um, and, it, and if you have to send 10 people off for an interview or you have to shortlist it, well, we need to have, you know, four of this, four of that, you know, two of this. Like, you actually need to stipulate what people need to find I guess for you, and the ultimate would be when they pass their training, and you've got the right fit. Then there's incentives and bonuses to get those people recognised, and the and the recruitment strategies. I think in, you know remunerated. Um, but yeah, I I am a full. What works is what's get what's what gets measured, and uh, I'm a I'm a complete convert to quotas. Do you have anything
0: to add on that? I here? think you yeah you do need to measure things, but I. I'm not sure that it works on a... You know, the whole APS needs to employ this many people. I think it works on a more um, individualised level. So a lot of different agencies have different diversity. They might have, you know, a high degree of um, people who identify from an Indigenous background, but not many people with disabilities. So maybe they should be looking at their own organisation's demographics and saying, well, we're doing really well in this area. We've got that diversity of thought there. How about we consider what we're missing? Um, so I think it's really important for the yeah, agencies to sort of focus on that that kind of thing. Um, and I also think it's, it's bigger than just having sort of quotas for recruitment. It's about how you advertise your agency to be accessible to people from different backgrounds. They need to feel safe to be applying for those kind of roles. And I think, you know, recruitment panels need to be trained in, you know, diversity confidence, basically, so they know how to speak to people from different backgrounds. Um, and then I think once they're in the door, that's great. And, you know, if that's part of your quotas, you can tick that box. But how do you retain people and how do you yeah, support and them?
1: At each level, there, yeah. needs to, there need to be pathways um, or, you know, jungle gyms yeah. <laughs> for people of all different variations, yeah. and certainly now you know we've got people who have children as well, but people who are caring for elderly yeah. relatives or parents, and how do we, you know, manage them through what is essentially, in our experience, um, hierarchical organisations, which don't understand if you don't want to go up a hierarchy. Absolutely, I think there's a lot of
0: um, managerial capability that can be built in all organisations about how to. Yeah, how to speak to people and how to sort of nurture people from all, all different backgrounds.
3: So I've had an interesting reflection recently about quotas and, you know, being someone who is a minority um, and speaking to my peers, my friends who are women of colour and how um, recently we've actually started to question our own like capacity. It's like, did I, you know, something that we've achieved or right? it's like, do we achieve it because, you know, someone actually thought we were worth you know, this position or this um, award or, or is it because we're taking a box for them? That's what I think as well, honestly. I am a woman of colour as well and
2: I, I do fear a lot of times when I'm doing applications, am I just that culturally and linguistically diverse person that they want or do they actually want me for me? <laughs> yeah. So I completely understand on that level.
1: And, um, and this is where the biases come, right? The fact that you are getting a foot in the door or an opportunity to present yourself is on account of your diverse background and potentially a box ticking exercise. But your ability to then get the position is you. It is your credentials, it is your skill set, it is your qualifications, it is your potential. So in the past, you wouldn't have even got the opportunity to sell yourself. Because, you know, in our biases and our systems and the homosocial reproduction, everyone unconsciously and systemically favours um, what we've always favoured, right? And if you're working in an area where there are people of colour, you would find people or not of colour, you know, the Anglo-Saxon would be marginalised. So it, it works. It, I think it does work both ways. But be under no illusions, like the fact that you have your position and you're thriving and you're doing so well, what got you... A seat at the table to present yourself may have been your ethnicity or a box-ticking diversity exercise, but but what got you the job was you, and what's keeping you the job is your skill set. So please never ever mm-hmm. underrate or forget that you know capability and performance will never, ever, um, and can never be tokenized or tokenistic. You know you you've earned that right, but we overcame a few barriers in order to allow you the opportunity to present in that way.
0: I think it's a really tricky sort of balance because you might get someone in for an interview because they, you know, seem to be culturally diverse, but they could just have a different coloured skin. You know, they might have been educated in Australia, they might actually be the same person as you. And just because they, you know, identify as from a different culture or, you know, it's really tricky. So I think that's where that that balance comes in and that it's really checking, you know, you might be ticking a box to, you know, say you've got someone whose parents were born in another country. But if you really want that diversity of thought, it's about what that individual can bring regardless of their background. So,
3: I think that's the, um, the danger maybe yeah. of, of actually, you know, um, be, being confronted like at the forefront with a quota. Um, You know, I also think like sometimes if people say, oh, we're an equal opportunity employer. And if that's kind of the first lead line, then if somebody who is a minority, you know, may still have that, you know, I, I think in practical aspects, it may not be true at all. But knowing that, you know, somebody actually comes in with that thought of, "Okay, am I am I actually? fulfilling the boxing <laughs> exercise um, or is it actual aptitude and and I think particularly um, you know for women it is something that we doubt yeah. a lot of the time I think that that's you know a different characteristic as you talked about earlier with the possibilities about being a pilot <laughs> um, and and doubting that at the outset that's different to kind of our counterparts and so yes being really aware of not doing that to ourselves Um or to each other, for that matter. But it's a real thought, I suppose, that people do have. Like,
1: yeah, hmm. and this is where I think support and leadership is really important. Support for minority representations in an organisation so that at the coalface they are not defending policies that were strategic. You know, you, you need leadership to provide that protection and go, hey, team, this is what we're doing, this is why, and we don't, we don't, we don't rebut it. We support it Um, and rebuttals are done in an appropriate manner and it's not against the people (laughs) themselves. So I think leadership in defending strategic policies so that at the coalface people are not having to do it or question it uh, is is integral to to part of this. It's
2: a really important thing to think about. And just finally, as we wrap up, I just wanted to know if you have uh, like a one-line advice or a piece of insight that you'd like to give... And share with our listeners regarding what could or should be done to create a more equal future.
0: Um, so a line that my team and I always say, I think we're we're very optimistic and we're saying we're trying to build the skills so you can put us out of a job. So hopefully in the future, you don't need specialised diversity inclusion areas in, you know, APS agencies because it will just be the way things are done. So I think we're at the, at the beginning of that journey, I guess, and we're really we've just sort of sold the business case on it. So it's good for people. It's also good for your business. So I think if we can keep, you know, there's a lot of momentum around it. So if we can keep pushing that, hopefully we'll be unemployed.
1: Success. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think for me is there's research around um, representations of, of groups. And if they're under 10% in any, I guess, organisation or role, they're considered a pioneering demographic or a pioneering population. And, you know, I look at the historically pioneers you know they had all these responsibilities and it's no different today if you are in a pioneering cohort then there are just some things you're going to have to do to make it better for the people coming behind you and I just say to people in these pioneering roles just step up (laughs) suck it up step up you are going to make it better for the uh, for the next generation.
3: So my kind of takeaway line is um, that at the end of the day we're all human And I think that it's really important to recognise our common humanity, but also celebrate the fabulousness that is the diversity of us being human. Wow. Those are some great takeaways from all three of you. And I'd just like to thank
2: you all so very much for taking your time to come in and speak to me about diversity and inclusion. So thank you very much. Thanks, man. Thank Thank you. you. That was a very fascinating discussion to be a part of, and in my opinion it is so easy to think about diversity as ensuring we have a male-female balance, but there's so much more to it than that. We also need to be thinking about cultural diversity, inclusion and accessibility for those who experience disabilities, and of course getting intergenerational perspectives when it comes to decision making and policy making. But I'd love to know what you think about all of this. Do you think we need quotas, or has political correctness gone too far? let me know. Last week, Policy Forum Pod celebrated its 50th episode with a special podcast. Your podcast hosts, old and new, took a trip down memory lane to some of the best and worst moments of the podcast. If you haven't listened to that episode and wanted to check it out, we'll leave a link in the show notes for you. We would just like to thank you all once again for the support that you have given us. Policy Forum Pod would not be possible without our listeners. Thank you all for connecting with us on social media, providing comments, and coming up with some absolutely brilliant questions for us to put to our guest. We've really enjoyed and appreciated your support. I'd also just like to thank Cherry Gladman, who included the National Security Podcast in her list of great Australian pods. If you haven't had a chance to listen to our new podcast series, hosted by Chris Farnham, we'll also leave a link to that for you. There's a new pod out on Tuesday, and it's about weaponised narratives, now, I have no idea what that actually means, but I'm sure Chris will give us a rundown next week, so stay tuned for that. If you wanted to get in contact with us, please email us. Our email is podcast at policyforum.net. We would also love to talk to you on social media. On Twitter, we are Apps Policy Forum, or our Facebook page is Asia and the Pacific Policy Society. And that's all from me, Maya. I'll catch you next time.